out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, if only, who knows. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As always, we like an interview with a featured artist. This week is, is going to be the turn of guitarist Peter Monchalov, who I spoke to quite recently. Well, a long time ago, really. Um, one of the founding members of Tallulah Gosh, Heavenly and much, much more. So I've got that interview that I've got, I'm going to play. But before we have that excitement, I think we should play your favourite of mine. This is Tallulah Gosh with a track that's also titled Tallulah Gosh. They keep it simple. Here it is. Turn up your stereos.
God, that is so dramatic. That's Tallulah Gosh with a track titled, yes, Tallulah Gosh. Anyway, this is David Easel. This is the C86 Show. This week's special guest is going to be Peter Monchiloth, who I spoke to recently. Well, quite a while ago, actually, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. So um, sometimes I do the admin at this point, but frankly... I, have, um, I think we should just skip the admin and go straight into the interview. Uh, the first part, I've just been talking for ages about a band called Kicking Giant and The Need, which is fascinating. I've edited that out, but then began by asking a little bit about that early years and his musical journey. And this was Peter's response. Peter, take it away. Actually, I will just warn you, the uh, recording does stop at one stage and I had to restart it. So there's a bit of a jump, but just stick with it. It's quality chat. Anyway, Peter, over to you. I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I first made a record in 1986. So that's 31 years ago. And I've never really stopped. I've always had a couple of groups on the go, although most of them have been, you know, not particularly well known. But um, yeah, I've kept doing it. And I suppose all in all, I've been in probably a dozen or so bands. Yeah. So do, do you just give us a background to your own musical and, and artistic journey as, as the teenager sort of developing sure. your musical um, yeah, narrative? Yeah. Well, I suspect that your listeners won't necessarily recognize my name i mean you've had some well-known names on recently gina birch and um uh, brick smith obviously um they probably and robin hitchcock so they probably don't know who i am but i played with first with Tallulah gosh and then with heavenly those are probably the best known groups that i've been in and Tallulah gosh started when um I was working in a record shop in Oxford and Amelia, I met Amelia from the band who was just starting just before she went to university. And uh, we, well, Amelia got the band Tallulah Gosh together with her friend Elizabeth Price and brought me in and her brother Matthew. This was in about 1986, 85, 86, something like that. And I can certainly tell you where Tallulah Gosh were coming from musically. Um, we were going to see a lot of band, like-minded bands like the Pastels and the Shop Assistants. And I think what we all had in common was trying to make something new out of two kinds of influence, one of which was punk rock, like the Ramones, and the other of which was 60s, pop like the girl groups the ronettes or the shangri-las so that's where the group was coming from and i I mean i listened to lots of other records insofar as i brought anything to the group i it was probably a certain kind of old-fashioned 50s 60s twangy guitar but the main sort of musical direction of the group came from the singers amelia and liz who were bringing together those two influences punk rock and uh, 60s pop and a little bit of 80s stuff as well. I think Tallulah Gosh was also influenced by Dolly Mixture, the Marine Girls, the Pastels, the TV personalities, bands like that who were doing a pop thing in the alternative music world in the early 80s. Yes, because obviously, you know, you, but you started playing the bass kind of like the late 70s. So obviously this was 
when punk had sort of had sort of well and truly been established and um, had probably also gone, been going downhill for a few years. So obviously your musical taste were much more pre sort of indie because I've always put indie, you know, in a slightly sweeping way as the, the first Smith single, which was probably about 83. And then it sort of puttered out towards that in 85 time. No, 87 time with the last Smith's album. But obviously that's kind of just a bit of a narrative that I've put in my mind. But but obviously when bands like the Tallulah Gosh came along, you know, you'd had the sort of the C86 show tape by then hadn't you as well and the indie scene had with John Peel playing all those bands had sort of been going for quite a few years so you'd also you know you'd been around for a bit longer than probably a lot of people who had just sort of formed bands in that time I think that's kind of true I think that insofar as there was a something called the indie scene that did which people talked about in that way, that did happen around about 85, 86. However, I think that a lot of the people who were doing though that music had actually been do- been going for a while. I mean, if you take the TV personalities, who in s- some ways I think invented indie pop, they were really doing it in 1977, 78. Um, and they were pretty well developed by about 1983. Likewise, the Marine Girls, by 83, they'd got a dolly mixture, late 70s, early 80s. I think these people were doing that kind of music. It's just that there wasn't a named scene. People weren't aware of it as a scene. People talked instead about post-punk or DIY. Um, I think you're right that the indie scene really got going in as a sort of self-conscious subculture in the mid-80s, around 85, 86. But quite a lot of the people in the bands had been doing things in one way or another for longer. For instance, I mentioned Dolly Mixture, the TV personalities, the Marine Girls. These were all people of, I guess, roughly my age who had probably first got into bands around about the time of punk, Mm. around about the, the end of the 70s and had started to sort of find our way. And uh, after a few years, we came up with the founder. We found bands that were that worked for us. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I started playing as a sort of fellow traveller of punk. In a sort of, my first band sounded like the jam and Dr. Feelgood. And um, it was only by about 83 or 84 that uh, I think I started to play something which find people with whom I could play something which sounded a bit more like indie pop as it came to be known. Yeah, because I'd, I'd sort of, as I probably mentioned before, you know, I kind of got indie pop, you know, the, the sort of one particular period, I suppose, was the 83, the first Smith single and album, and then 87 where, you know, Smith's finished. But obviously, you know, there's kind of a merge in either side of that. And there was obviously an awful lot of indie bands that came after the 87 Smith's last break, you know, last album and breakup. So obviously... You know, a lot of people must have felt part of a scene. Were you also aware of other bands around and, and sort of labels and the, and the general sort of John Peel scene and the enemy on a Wednesday? Yes, you're absolutely right to mention John Peel and the NME as the kind of centres of it. They both f- were willing to focus on quite obscure bands in a way that the media is perhaps less likely to do now so um it 
Tallulah Gosh, for instance, when we hadn't even put a record out, got a feature on quite a large feature on page three of one of the music papers. Um, and that was certainly instrumental in us getting attention that the press in those days and John Peel, they were always looking out for new things and they didn't mind, didn't ma- mind if the band was totally obscure, if they felt that it was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because so, what I was, quite, you know, when you mentioned the Marine, Marine Girls, that was the one thing that was kind of, now I listen to it, I thought, oh yeah, that's quite nice. But at the time it was quite a radical sound because it was so almost underproduced and so sort of like... Um, I suppose delicate, really, which at the time, you know, you had that post-punk, then you had that huge kind of new wave, um, new romantic scene and, and such a bombastic kind of production quality. And then you had people like, um, you know, there was Tracy Thorne, Gina and Jane and Alice, who were all part of that band, who, you know, w- the sound was so radically different to anything that was happening at the time. I agree with you. I think that's right. I think they were a very original band. And actually, I think the early 80s was really good for that, bands coming out of nowhere. Uh, and I think this is, John Peel encouraged this. He liked bands that sounded distinctive. So if you came up with something unusual, you didn't necessarily feel that you had to try to make it sound more like normal bands. And yes. I think that was a very good thing for musical creativity. Yeah, absolutely. And also one thing that I've noticed with with a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, there is this for themselves also, you know, the, the five-year narrative that they have, which is the sort of getting together and then sort of realising they've made a sound and doing the single, often the John Peel session, the album, the tour, and then that tricky next period of the, the sort of the second album and also dealing with the sort of general admin with, you know, managers and I suppose the finance and the lack of finance. And how did you, you know, your journey take because obviously you went through quite a few bands at that time yes i think you're right there is often a trajectory like that and i think it's because in a way it's easiest when it's new it's easiest for the band to get excited about it when you play your first gig your friends all come when you play your first gig in london people might come when you play your your first gig in manchester it might arouse a certain amount of interest it's hard to sustain. It's hard to sustain the enthusiasm and it's hard to keep coming up with things which sound new and interesting. In Britain, British popular culture, people are always looking for the next thing. So, yeah, a lot of bands found that they had a run of a few singles and an album when people took an interest. And then after that, it was hard to keep the interest at the same level. Yeah. I mean, with Tallulah Gosh, it wasn't a five-year thing. It, <clears throat> I think we squeezed it all into about two or three years. And I think in our case, it was just people wanted to do different things. It wasn't that we exactly, it wasn't that we had problems doing the band. It was more that just Amelia in particular just wanted to try something different. You know, we'd, uh, we, we'd had, we'd had a good, a good time for a, a couple of years and we didn't really get to this. We weren't around long enough to get to the stage of tricky second albums. We didn't even do one album. We just did a lot of singles in the session. And and do you sort of realize, you know, look back and, and, and probably at the time think it was just something that was going to be happening, but nobody would be interested. Are you slightly amazed how, how much interest and enthusiasm there are still is? for all these bands and that particular scene. Yeah. And, and especially, you know, like them all, all of them, but especially the Sarah Records label, you know, which was yeah. one of those ones that, 
got a lot of flack at the time, but obviously people absolutely love it and, and it's still so well sort of held, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I think in the 80s, um, people who were on who were playing gigs in the alternative club scene might have hoped that they would get a chance of getting their song on the radio. So I think a lot of groups got that, saw that they others getting that little flash of fame. And so everyone kind of hoped they might get their record played on John Peel or a little review in the NME or something. I think the surprising thing for a lot of us, as you suggested, is that it had some longevity, you know, that a few years down the line, there was still seem, there seemed to be a sort of revival of interest. In the case of Sarah Records, that I think came from overseas. I think it did. It was in Britain. It was uh, it what it wasn't very fashionable, and attention shifted elsewhere. And you wouldn't have said in the nineties that mid nineties, whenever Sarah finished, that it was really booming. Um, I think they struggled to get interest from the media in the bands. However, at the same time as people in Britain, the fashion in Britain went elsewhere, in other countries like Japan, Spain, and the USA in particular, maybe Scandinavia as well, people really latched onto this Sarah thing and generated a whole new life for it really and i think the reason there's an indie scene today is an uh, indie pop scene today lasting one is that the torch got passed to other people around the world and eventually in britain it revived a bit and now there are bands doing that kind of music again yeah absolutely and obviously the other thing that we often slightly forget about and i sort of realize as well is that there's the the political backdrop of the period as well from you know because because obviously you, th you know you look at the music that was being sort of played especially on the john peel show and, and you know there was an awful lot on the, in the charts but then you realize that the backdrop to all this was this kind of you know, the Thatcher's Britain, there was kind of the clash with the miners' strike, there was Red Wedge, there was kind of Live Aid and, and sort of the whole sort of political scene in South Africa as well that was happening with apartheid. So was any of that sort of like, I mean, that obviously filtered into a lot of the indie scene and a lot of the indie bands as well. And, and um, you know, you had that whole Red red Wedge movement as well and, and people like, you know, the Redskins and Robert Wyatt doing quite political songs. So did you feel also sort of that was a driving force behind your musical journey? Um, not that kind of politics. I don't think that um, any of the bands I was in thought that we could make, uh, do anything about social justice or um, politics of that kind by being in a band. I think the kind of politics which uh, people in Heavenly and Tallulah Gosh were interested in were more the sort of um, the politics of uh, gender roles. And and uh, I think we were, insofar as we had a political, political aims, it was to try and make rock music, make the pop music we did less centred on uh, well, let me just say masculine values. Um, there were, and this is, we, if you like, we that we could we took our cue 
in this from bands like the Marine Girls and Dolly Mixture, who I think confounded people's expectations of what women in groups could be like. Um, it was okay not to conform visually or orally to the expectations of a female rock group or a female, a female musician. I think that was, insofar as Heavenly and Tallulah Gosh had uh, any political contribution to make, I think it was probably along those lines. Yeah, it was interesting because I think the reason I, I liked indie you know, music so much more than probably the punk, punk movement, movement was that, and you mentioned that word masculinity, there was the punk movement became very blokey. Well, not even, you know, it didn't even become, it was always a bit blokey to begin with, and then it became very blokey and sort of quite macho. And I know everyone always says, oh, there's the Slits and there were Susan and the Banshees and, and possibly the Raincoats and there's probably a few other bands that I forgot. But actually, predominantly, it was kind of, you know, that, that whole world was ruled by people like Johnny Rotten and Joe Strummer and, and you know, the blokes were there. And the indie scene came along, and it, and then, and that especially that, marine girls album and singles that they brought took out it sort of took away all that kind of macho stuff and power chords and and the po the posing at the beginning you know front of the stage and actually the indie scene seemed to be able to encourage a much more introverted artist into the sort of uh musical genre which i thought was you know made it in more in interesting but also it took away having that sort of i suppose this slightly alpha male sort of macho we're going to be bigger than you and and actually it's interesting when you know the gender roles are more balanced because actually it almost seems a bit sort of like embarrassing looking at some of the punk bands and and what they would stand for and I know that there's this 40th anniversary at the moment and and there seems to be an awful lot of chaps kind of doing their thing at the moment which kind of yeah, it, it sort of summed, for me, it kind of summed up a lot of the punk movement, really, which I think the indie movement just was much more interesting because it just had a much more of a... It didn't have... I mean, they had the Smiths, I know, but it didn't really have these kind of really sort of big kind of macho egos. Yeah, I mean, I think the people who were really on the front line of um, contesting that kind of masculine culture were... The Slits and Dolly Mixture. People, Slits went out supporting the Sex Pistols and the Clash. The Dolly Mixture went out supporting the Damned and other bands. Those are much more. That's a much more challenging thing than uh, what we were doing, which was playing in small clubs to probably um, less macho audiences. Nevertheless, there was definitely a feeling in the, even when Tallulah Gosh and Heavenly were doing things five years down the line from these other bands, there was definitely a feeling that it were, a lot of people in the music business weren't expecting these other ways of being in a band. You know, maybe the promoters or who would want to, or the sound men who would want to talk to the men in the band or who would try to um, explain to the women in the band how to do things, you know. Uh, I think there was already, there were still very heavy gender role expectations in the indie band world. All I can say is thank you to uh, Viv Albertine and Debsy from the Dolly Mixture and all the others who uh, went out there and got spat on and um, insulted and they were the ones who really had the hard job in trying to change uh, the gender roles in 
uh, pop music, punk rock music. Yes, absolutely. And because you know, you obviously went through quite a few bands, which was quite impressive. Because most people, once they've had the you know the feel of their five year first band, probably want to put the guitar or drums or microphone down, and then sort of hide it for a few decades. But you sort of managed to keep sort of plugging away quite sort of happily, didn't you? Yes. Well, I think we've um, discovered that lot, most people uh, in bands, if they really get a liking for it, they don't give it up. I mean, you, many, many of the people who I used to see playing in bands in the 80s are still doing it in one form or another. I think that um, the around about the the end of the 20th century, it became obvious that guitar bands were not just a matter for young people. Perhaps they used to be, but in fact, the baby boomers grabbed guitar bands and they wouldn't let go. So people who are now in their 50s um, didn't stop, didn't pass on the torch to other people. They they held on to that guitar band thing and they're all still doing it. And to some extent, I think the guitar band world is still dominated by these uh, these mighty figures from from that era, you know, Morrissey or Nick Cave or whoever, you know, they're still the big names. Um, they didn't stop. Yes, they didn't. Anyway. <laughs> no, I, I kept going yeah I kept yeah. going and it's partly because perhaps because I didn't have children you know so I didn't have that natural interruption to to a career or a pastime which you know lots lots of people they get to 30-ish and they suddenly find for the next 10 or 15 years they just can't do all that stuff they did in their 20s well I didn't have children so I could continue spending my weekends and my evenings playing in bands. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you what would you say to your eighteen year old self? You know, if you sort of bumped into him at a club and he was just starting out in, <laughs> in the rocky world of music. Well, I think, um, yeah, okay, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I'd have any musical advice. I think what people usually say when they are asked a question like that is enjoy it you know make sure that you're in that you're enjoying it try to en- try to enjoy being in the band that's what it's all about um but i think i took that advice i i think i did that anyway so i don't know i think perhaps be any anyone advising their 18 year old self would probably advise them to be a bit less of a jerk and not to sort of talk so loud when they're drunk and uh, be a bit more respectful of people but you know i mean I'm sure I was an obnoxious young person and that probably just goes with the territory, doesn't it? It would be weird to be a, uh, to be behaving like a middle-aged man when you're an 18-year-old. So I think I'd probably just say to my 18-year-old self, you know, carry on, just do what, you, <laughs> do what you're doing. Don't worry about it. Have a good time. Excellent. And just because you've you know, been in so many lineups, what was your particularly favourite period and sort of, you know, what particular records from that, from that sort of career so far that you think, God, that was really the business? Yeah. Um, the, the busiest time was... Obviously, perhaps not surprisingly, when I was young, from about 86 till about the late 90s. So that was 
rewarding in terms of a lot of people taking an interest. In terms of records I liked, um, I I particularly liked the last Heavenly album. Um, I thought that was uh, Operation Heavenly. I thought that was perhaps our best record. We split up immediately after it or stopped going, so it, it probably didn't get as much attention as the others. But I think that's a really good one. I think we all felt that it was a really good record. Um, and I... The would-be goods records I've made, uh, I think, are all really good. Um, it's bands always like to say that their last record is their best one, uh, don't they? Because it makes it seem makes it all seem worthwhile. Yes, it's interesting. Yes, I guess it is for a fan. Often it's like, no, the first album's the best. I know. I know. <laughs> apart from the Smiths, apart from the Smiths' first album, which was like, oh, that's dreadful. But um, but it <laughs> well, was. That's, uh, abso- that's absolutely right. It's usually the the time when fans were most excited about a band was when they first discovered them. Yes. And that is likely to be their first album or their first album that got attention. So, yeah, uh, I think you're right. It's quite likely that if you took a poll of Heavenly fans, I think probably the first album would be the favourite one. And that's fine. It, I, it's perhaps my second favourite of the four albums we did. So that's fine. Yeah. And how did, the, how, how did Tallulah Gosh call it a day? What, what was the moment? Um. It was, it was, we'd been going for two, about two, maybe three years, maybe only two. It was simply that Amelia, who was the main driving force of the band, wanted to do things differently. I think she wanted to try and make different kinds of music. And in particular, I think she was a bit, she didn't really think that the democratic approach of everyone, a lot of different people throwing in songs worked very well and in retrospect i think she was right um although i think i like all of Tallulah gosh's records but it was a bit chaotic the way the group worked and i think if you are for a songwriter like her it kind of made more sense to form a band which was driven just by her vision rather than by four people's different visions so anyway that's how that's what we ended up doing with heavenly a couple of years later heavenly started i think about 1989 a year or two after Tallulah gosh stopped and with heavenly it was the understanding was that it was amelia's songs and although we all contributed musically that it was really her centered around her um musical vision if you like Yes, and then how, and and then the sort of because again that duration went for quite a while, didn't it? It got right into the sort of mid nineties, and then that sort of also came to an end. Was that to do with Amelia's brother? That's right. Yeah. Um. So we started, I think, at the end of eighty nine, and then Matthew died in the summer of ninety six. So yeah, we were going for almost seven years, and as I said, I think we felt the band was going well, and I think it probably would have continued but we didn't feel we could keep doing it without him i mean we thought i don't know if we thought about it or not i think we just felt we weren't going to continue doing it however the the four of the other four members of heavenly did reconvene a year a couple of years later as marine research but i think we felt that after matthew it wasn't really possible to be heavenly anymore yes and then your your journey in the, in the would-be goods, how did that yeah. sort of um, begin and finish? 
Yeah, I mean, that's still going. It would be good to still play. Um, although we haven't done a new album for a long time. Um, the Would Be Goods originally were just were not a live band. They were just a vehicle for Jessica Griffin's songwriting. Uh, they made two albums like that. She made two albums in the early nine, later early nineties. I can't remember the exact dates. I'll look them up. Um, with the monochrome set as her backing band, but it was never uh, a, a con- conventional band. Then yes. I met. Sorry. No, I, I, no, I just said yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me see if I can get those dates for you. Uh, 1988 was the first Would Be Goods album, and the second one was early was 92, I think. Then she didn't really do anything for a while, and I got together with her at the end of the 90s and encouraged her to uh, think about doing some more Would Be Goods stuff. Um, and she had some songs, and she got... Um, some um, got animated about doing the group again and actually came up with quite a lot of songs about 20 songs in the and we worked and we sort of picked the worked out got an album's worth and a couple singles in the early 2000s and I think the logical next step was to try and make it a live band which we did in about when was it in about 2002 i think right i think it's i think it's 2002 we got a, a live band together which was uh featured my old friend debbie green uh as the drummer and um eventually we got we had another bass player for a while eventually in the about 10 years ago we got andy warren who was the original bass player in the would be goods uh, Andy from the monochrome set back in. So for about 10, 12 years now, uh, we've been a, a sort of continuous band. We don't play very much, though. We play about two or three times a year. And Jessica's slowly working on songs for the sixth Would Be Goods album. She did two albums with the monochrome set back in the olden days. And since it got going as a proper group, uh, We've done three more albums. We do, you know, about every five years. We're very slow. Yes. I mean, do you feel, I remember there was, a, there was one of those BBC Four documentaries that I loved so much on a Friday night, and, and they were talking about the, the Sideman. And um, it doesn't sound like you're completely in that sort of role, but obviously you have, bit, you know, it was presented by Earl Slick. So you have sort of played with an awful lot of different singers and been in a lot of different bands. So do you, do you sort of, with each of those musical lineups, have to... Be, enter or have or did enter very cautiously with each kind of like um group that's a good question um yes in in reply to your implied question yes i am the earl slick or (laughs) carlos alomar of uh indie pop um yeah i think i try to i'm i haven't been the sort of main creative force in any of these bands so i try to get a grip on what the style, musical style of the group is and play accordingly. But I suppose I do generally end up bringing a sort of 50s, 60s twangy thing to it because that's 
that seems to be how they all a lot of them end up with variants of that but i do try and make it different i mean i've got had some other bands which are more i some noisy punk rock bands and obviously i try and play differently for those yes. um but i like being i like the role of helping contributing to make someone's songs work out uh, i think that's very satisfying and I write the I write a few songs for the would be good sort of one or two per album, so that gives me my little outlet. Yes. And when you sort of first came across the Smiths and dear old Johnny, Johnny Marr and that amazing sound, did um, was did that was that was that like a JFK moment for guitarists? No, not really. I I don't really, I don't really play the guitar anything like Johnny Marr, and that's not because I can't, although I probably can't. But because I don't really want to, it's it's not my kind of thing. That that uh, well, that distinctive sound of his. I know that it's a very he's a very much admired and imitated guitar player. But I have never tried to play like that. It's yeah. quite tricky for a start. But um, you know, those it's pretty difficult to play Smith's guitar parts. Uh, I can tell just by listening to them. Um, but it's never been my style, really. I think his. His style is a sort of, I would say, a kind of birdsy, R.E.M.-y thing, but, you know, quite subtle and sophisticated. And it's just not my style. I like I like more clear-cut things. I don't really like reverby, ringy playing. I like things to be clear and neat and twangy. So I, whereas he probably, what his, his idols, guitar idols are probably the birds, Mine would be more like Steve Cropper of Booker T and the MGs. Yes. And also, I think there was a... It was at Hank from The Shadows. A lot of people yeah. from the punk period sort of um, copied his style because it was kind of quite unsort of fussy and there was definitely no sort of Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix twanging or, or anything too difficult. It was quite sharp, actually, dear old Hank. I think you're, I think you're right, actually. I think that... Um, Around about the same time as punk, for starting in the late 70s and for some time thereafter, there was kind of a rock and roll revival, rock and roll, rockabilly, 50s revival. It kind of went hand in hand with punk. Quite a lot of the punk guitarists, you know, would have a quiff and a bootlace tie and play a twangy guitar solo. You know, the Clash did brand new Cadillac. And um, uh, I, I think it was... There were, I think you're right to suggest that that 50s guitar style crept back into music in the in the late 70s and into the 80s. In the 80s, there were lots of there's lots of twanging guitar. Yes. Uh, the Monochrome set are one example, but you know, better known groups as well. I mean, REM did twangy guitar, so yes. yeah, uh, I suppose yeah, it was um, it was actually with Neil X from Zig Zig Spuckneck who I interviewed because I was kind oh, of, yeah. I was kind of curious because they were definitely not a band I liked at the time. But then you know. I'm always a bit of a sucker for sort of hearing people's stories. And um, he was sort of saying that that his, you know, guitar sound, it was all sort of from the 50s, Eddie Cochran yeah. and those guys. And that's kind of basically what he played then. And that's what he plays now. So it is kind of going back to those kind of 70s, uh, 50s kind of rock and rollers, really. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. So that was cool. Anyway, look, although, Pete, although oh. punk was supposedly opposed to the Teddy Boys, in fact, there was a lot of, Teddy Boy, there's a lot of the musical continuity between what the Teddy Boys liked and what the punks liked. Indeed. 
It's a true story. Anyway, I hope you're making notes. It's interesting stuff. That is my conversation with Pete Monchiloff, one-time member of Tallulah Gosh, Heavenly, and about a million other bands. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall. This has been The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. Obviously, it's a free country. You don't have to. But you could on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show, and it's always nice to hear from you, as long as it's positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't, don't... Just don't bother. And um, also, all these shows have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and Mixcloud. So, there you go. There's no excuse not to listen to indie pop from the golden decade. That was the 80s. Anyway, I'm going to have to say goodbye, but I'll leave you with another track by Tallulah Gosh. This is my best friend. I do believe. Anyway, have a great week. I asked you a hundred times, would you be my best friend? Forever, forever.